0: Hey, I read two books on my vacation that were leadership books. So if you're looking for something, you may have read these, they're not brand new. Uh, one is called Creativity. Uh, that's the story of Pixar. And a very interesting book, especially if you've watched any of the Pixar movies. So he basically tells you the story of Pixar and then he has a bunch of leadership lessons at the end. I thought that was fascinating. And uh, then a book called Essentialism, which you can read in about an hour. I would just check it out at the library. And it's not anything new. It's just going to say, hey, you do a bunch of stuff that's not very important. Focus on the things that are important. So if you don't want to read the book, you just got the summary right there. Uh, but, again, just sometimes for me, I just have a book at my bedside, and I'm just reading through things. And I thought those things were, you know, worthwhile. Both of them I got from the library because I don't like to pay for things I'm not going to use longer than uh, that, that little sound bite. So very helpful. Um, When we're getting together here this morning, our stated purpose is to act like men uh, by equipping men to be better leaders in their own personal lives, in their homes, their work, their churches, their city for the sake of God's glory. And so this little phrase, act like men, is lifted from the book of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul has written a letter to the church at Corinth, which is a city in, in Greece, and this particular city and this particular church is very troubled. So he spent a whole, he spent, his 16 chapters long, so he spent 15 chapters trying to give instructions basically to this unruly church. And inside this church, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that there's politics in the church, there's cliques in the church, there's certain people who like certain speakers, and they think their speaker, their leader's better than the other leader hard to imagine that happening. There's pride, there's power structure struggles, there's sexual immorality, lawsuits, troubled marriages, and disorder in the worship service. And just to give you a little brief bio of what these people are like, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, those who are greedy, drunkards, slanders, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what I love. And that's what you guys were. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I'm just listing all the characteristics of what you had before you met Jesus. So this is the crowd. This is his church. They're all formerly these kinds of people. And you can imagine these kinds of people coming in and saying, okay, we make up the core of the church. Well, guess what? They're still going to have a lot of these you know, residual problems as they come in. So Paul's having to fight against all these things in this letter. And so when he gets to the end of the letter, he understands that when the letter's read in the church service, and he's addressed all these problems, just reading... As you know, especially as a, if you're a dad, just saying a statement doesn't actually produce the action you want, does it? I mean, you can read the Bible, but does that mean you're actually going to do what the Bible says? So Paul understands that somebody's going to stand up there and read these instructions, but there's going to have to be a leader who's going to have to step into the life of this church, and that leader, he says, has to act like a man. Act like a man. And he doesn't explain it. He just assumes you understand what that means. Somebody's got to step in and have a spine, and somebody has to decide, I'm not going to act like a child anymore because that's what we've got going on in here. We've got a lot of children, power struggles. I want this toy. No, you can't have it. It's basically this grown-up power struggle from three-year-olds And somebody's going to have to act like a man. And Paul says, some of you guys are going to have to act like men. Dave Ramsey, the financial guy, he says, "Uh, children do what feels good. Adults devise a plan and execute it. So that's what he's saying. We've got to have some adults in the room who devise a plan and execute on that plan. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about acting like men. And so in Iron Leadership, we think in order to understand how to be a man, how to act like a man, you have to be around other men, number one. Number two, you have to learn from Jesus and the Bible. And then you have to get some help in some way, whether it's from the Bible or from other men. And so that's what we're doing here at Iron Leadership. Now when we get together on Friday mornings, this is basically like the foyer to your house. You get inside, you meet some people, but the deep conversation happens, you know, either in the kitchen or the den or somewhere else in the house. You have to move in a little bit further. And so we're glad you're here, but' this just a foyer? This is just it's the beginning spot. And what we're saying is that there's going to be some troubles, there's probably some troubles in your life right now that you need more help then just a little 20 minute talk and a 20 minute conversation is going to ha- going to get you. And so you're going to have to do something that every leader has to do and ask for help. And that might be somebody else here in this meeting, it might be me. I don't I don't really care who it is, but but you're going to need like you need you need somebody to say, "Can we go to the kitchen and sit and talk?" You're going to need a little bit more help in that way. So I'm saying to you, I'm available to help you or get you help in some way, but we can't read your mind. So you got to say, hey, i got this issue, i got this problem. It might be ongoing or it might be immediate. Either way, and we'll try to get you help. And you're going to be helping somebody else at some point. Somebody's going to be helping you. So don't be afraid to ask in that way. So the content for this uh, year, this is year number six for Iron Leadership. Anybody come the very first year? You remember you came. Wow, quite a few. Welcome. Glad, you're, glad you stuck it out, Keith. Um, so this is what I want to do for this year. The very first year, so six years ago, uh, I did a whole year on Nehemiah. And so I want to spend a, just the first semester looking at Nehemiah. And the reason I like Nehemiah, of all the leaders in the Bible, is he's most like me in this way. When you read through Nehemiah, there's no miracle in Nehemiah nobody walks on water, no angel appears, nothing miraculous happens. It's just a regular guy who's in a tough spot and he has to, he has to exercise some leadership. And when he exercises leadership, he has some successes, he has some failures, he has some conflicts. So I think, yeah, that's a lot like me. I, have, I, I, don't, I don't regularly walk on water, believe it or not. I don't have angels visit me. I'm just a regular guy just trying to do what God wants me to do. I see some successes. I have some failures. I have to deal with conflict. So I love Nehemiah in that way, and I think you'll attach yourself to him as a leader in that way as well. So we're, we're talking about Nehemiah, and in the second half, we're going to talk about the interior life of the leader or what I might say, the soul of the leader. And one particular concern I have mostly for myself, but I have for you as well, is that when you're a leader of any, any stage, being a leader is meaning you're, you're working with somebody else. If, if you think you're a leader and nobody's following, guess what? You're just out for a walk. I mean, you're not a leader, you're just taking a walk. Which is fine, but that's not leadership. But leadership is somebody's moving behind you. So you're you're exercising some kind you're exercising some kind of influence on somebody. And so in order to do that, that takes a lot of your emotional energy. And the more people you have to lead, whether it's a family or a business or a church the more emotional energy you have to give to that particular thing. And it takes emotional energy, mental energy, spiritual energy. It might take financial energy. And so you're like the person who's pouring yourself out. And if you're not careful, you can just burn out. And you haven't really taken care of your own soul so that when you go to try to help somebody else, you're really not that helpful because you're just shriveled up and you've, you've, you've seen this. You've all been on a plane flight. You know, what do they say if the oxygen mask drops out? What is the very first thing you're supposed to do? Yeah, you, you put it on yourself. Why? Because you can quickly get dizzy, and you're not, you know, you're, you're a problem and not a, not a help. So the, the second half I want to talk about, hey, do you have the oxygen mask on your own soul? Because if you don't have that, then whether you're just trying to help a son or a daughter or you're trying to help somebody at work or some friend, whatever that is, you're not going to be that helpful because your soul is going to be dizzy and you're going to be talking to somebody who's dizzy and you're not going to get very far. So I want to talk about our, our interior life. Proverbs four twenty three: above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life or The source of your life flows out of your heart. So that's what we're going to talk about, guarding our heart. Uh, So this morning, what I want to do is I want to watch this video that if you've been here with any uh, length of time, you've seen it because I love this video. This is the video I always show at the very first Iron Leadership. It's about wolves who uh, go get into the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone, sorry, and cause what this word is called this trophic cascade. So I want to just watch it, it takes about four minutes or so, and, uh, and then I'm going to pick up on a few themes, and then I'm going to ask you to talk about those things.
1: One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, that the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behaviour of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behaviour of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion, the channels narrowed, more pools formed, more riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilised the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography.
0: love that video